Show, a walls-down discussion with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. Welcome to Can Art Studio in downtown Toronto. My name is Dave Kinley, and welcome to The Riddick Show. Today, we have a uniquely Canadian story. He came from humble beginnings to a global brand. I believe, like myself, you'll feel like you've been heard through the honesty of his responses and the genuine way he goes about building his company and empowering others. Welcome to the show, Claude. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, you know, I would just say, uh, uh, secondly, I hope you will find my English refreshing. <laughs> but this being said, you know, uh, I, had to, I had to actually talk a little bit about my past couple of times in the last uh, years. And it's interesting because it obliges you to really go back and structure your thoughts. So it seems to be easy to talk about your youth, but it took me a couple of practice to really put together, you know, the element the, that led to today. So I'm happy to, to share that with you today, but it took a while to really take this time. People need to reflect uh, as far as I'm concerned. So I mean, like you said, I'm uh, from Quebec and I, I'm born in Montreal. And I was raised uh, very, very in a very humble environment. Uh, my father was a truck driver. My mother was at home. And, uh, and you know what? Uh, I don't want to start a whole crying story. But, uh, you know, uh, I always say that God gave me a first part of life, which was a little bit more tougher. So he, he puts it easier on me today. But, uh, yeah, so, you know... The only thing I can say about the youth is uh, when when means are limited, it, right. it puts you in a state of mind to try to find ways to get into a better place. And I think it's a good stimulus. Yeah. And, and do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah. Well, again, I don't want to get into sentimental, but uh, technically I'm an orphan. Okay. So I was in, you know, I, I called my parents, people that raised me for four or five years. Wow. So I don't have sisters, you know, I have sister by, uh, you know, by, I don't know how to say that, but uh, let's say adoption. Let's put it like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, the thing that strikes me a little bit is, uh, when you, wow, when you start to put all those pieces together on a young, you know, young kid. Um, you know, your, your mom was home, which was terrific because your dad chose a profession that probably put him on the road, yep. um, quite a bit and, and in a very dangerous, from what I know about trucking, you know, in Montreal and North of Montreal in the winter, depending on where they're sent, it's a very dangerous, uh, profession. And so, uh, what kind of challenges did that present? To you, do you end up being close to your mom, or? Well, uh, again, you know what? Uh, you're forcing me to uh, to open up a little bit on the youth. Is I did not know him very much. He died. I was probably eight years old. Okay. And I was taken back because my mother, my poor mother, could not uh, take care of everything. So I was sent back to the the orphanage, if you allow me to say. Yeah. So I did not know him very much. Uh, I more or less pass all my youth uh, into institutions. So this, yeah. you know, so, but uh, this being said, I don't know how dangerous it could have been, to be very honest. I was too young. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, every time I do this show, you know, I, you know, I look back at, at some of my own challenges when I was uh, earlier in my life, and I listen to the challenges of some of the other star leaders that that we've talked to uh, earlier in our shows um every time you think that you've gone through something quite hard you find out that others have been through a lot more and yeah. it's and it's a tough world out there and uh, and so that that's the part that that i really over the course of the next hour or so really want to try to get at and is what it is what is it about you and the choices you made 
that helped you um, fight through, you mm. know, all those uh, tough situations. So if you, you, uh, if your dad passed away at a young age, then did you stay with your mother though for quite a while? No, um, this is, but you know, we have to, we have to realize something, uh, David, to start with is, don't forget when you look at your youth with your eyes of today, mm -hmm. you may find situation quite alarming. Would I would love my kids to live what I live? Absolutely not. But it would be false to think that we were, I was into a suffering mode or, you know what, you adapt. You, I live my life and, I, and you know what, the, I was more or less a happy boy, even if... Uh, you know, but it can look dramatic. But when you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, you don't live with the same emotional pattern or the the life experience. So, yes, my, you know, my mother, my, let's say my adoption mother and my yes. adoption father, actually, they divorced. I was 6, 7, 8, whatever. And they were split up. And uh, my father passed away not long after. And... Uh, so I didn't live with my mother and I went back into institutions Okay, and I got out at 15 years old. I'm giving you the short story. Yeah. So, but again, you know what, if you ask me, uh, I don't want you to think for a moment that my youth was a disaster and that I was unhappy and crying. Absolutely not. Mm. You know what? You, like I said, you adapt and I was living a kind of my normal situation, taking the best out of it. Now, hindsight, did it help a little bit uh, for me to have a certain focus on building something for myself and a family and, you know what, and continuity? Probably. You yeah. know? And between you and I, I think my kids are abusing a little bit of my, <laughs> of my fragility there. <laughs> well, you know, I have noticed that you... You know, for many, many years, you have kept the one home and you have made it obviously a little bit more uh, spectacular as the years have gone on. But but obviously you like having that home base not change. And, and you're same with your, your head offices as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably, you think that has anything to do with how you were raised? or Well, for sure. Uh, for sure is... You know, when you are in business, it's very demanding. I'm sure that we all know that. Mm -hmm. So now you make choices. You know, my choice was I was, you know, what I split my, myself into two focus business and family. I cannot have anything in between. I'm, I'm not saying it's good. It's, uh, you know, what I should have put a little bit more, probably a little bit more exercise in between, but that's another, that's another meeting. But my point is, Focusing on those two was plenty for me. Mm -hmm. So, because if you start putting everything in between, something is suffering somewhere. So I started to, I stayed, so far I stayed focused on those two very important part of my life. And so far it's working. Now, on top of that, it's, I need, uh, if you refer to my youth, I need a sense of stability. I need a sense of continuity mm -hmm. because if I had to say something about my youth that reflects today is for a couple of years in between, you know, my parents' divorce and institution, it was a very, very unstable period. It had and to be. this is the place where it really showed me that there is value in continuity and organization and structure. So this could be also a good link, you know, towards today and yesterday. Yeah, I I think that you know the more I I study this and the more people I talk to, um, people who have gone on to make significant contributions to our society, um, they have resilience, uh, and that can be defined in many different ways. But I I think it is those tough things that you go through over the course of your life that I, in, you know, depending on what you say resilience is, but it's that ability to get back up when you get knocked down, that belief in yourself that, you know, someone else isn't going to have control over your future because 
you've just gone through a tough time, you're going to still focus on what you know you do well and fight through it. And, uh, and some people might say that makes you tougher as a manager over the years. Um, I think actually what it does to a lot of great leaders is give them uh, the ability to be honest and fair leaders. You know, we're, I'm not going to be easy on you if you aren't performing. I'm going to be intellectually honest and tough with you when, when you need a correction. Um, but if you do well, I'm also going to be very loyal to you and stick with you and try to help you get better over time. And, uh, and, and we see that classically leaders like that uh, have really stable teams over a long period, as you have. Well, um, you know what, in, uh, in three minutes, I think you put a lot of material on the table. But uh, if I can comment on it is, we all live with our talents. You know, we, re you know, we all have our talents and our life stories. Um, for sure, uh, on, on, from my perspective, I learned very quickly that people are very important in your life. So it drives a little bit how you behave. I have a people, you know what, I, I built a people business. So that's another layer where I think if you, if, if people's are not, is not your cup of tea, maybe you should not be in my trade. Uh, but this being said, I would have loved to have your set, your, your state of mind when I was 15, 16, I was not that articulate, uh, you know, when, you know, I was like any 15 years old, but the only difference, if I can, allow, if you allow me to, I would not put it like, I don't want people to have control of my life or anything like this, but by reflecting, as soon as I had the means to develop money or to get money or acquire something, my natural reflex was not to, okay, let me ask somebody for a job or let, it was, okay, what can I do to make money? It was a natural from day one. And if you look at a couple of the things that I was uh, fortunate to do that they put on the web, they sh I did not know that, but that's another story. Uh, you know, uh, where I come from is to make money was that, okay, there is a need here. How can I, how can I, fill this need and make money with it. My reflex was always driven to that. So I think this has something to do with not being able to securely counting on some others like parents. And do you know what I'm saying? You know, when you know that you cannot count on, on others, maybe it drives you to find by yourself solutions. So maybe there's a little bit of that. So not in a negative way that I don't want to be controlled, but it was more like I have to find myself the way to make something happen. Yeah. Does it make sense? Absolutely. And and so when did that start for you then? You take you back to your teens. Um, did you um, go to school? Did you go to university? Or did you start to build your own company early on? Yeah, well, uh, I think one of the talent that uh, was given is I don't have a bad head. You know what? I can have, uh, I can think things through relatively rationally. And also is, I don't know how to phrase it, but when I interact with people into wanted to sell something or to provide something, a lot of time people will go for it. So yeah. I don't know, you can call this as a quality. So I started really working into the business development part, selling part. And this is where, you know, I remember, uh, I remember when I got out of college, let's put it, let's call it college. You know what? I had my own run of uh, delivery. Hey, you know what? I think I was the first Uber delivery man. You know what? 50 <laughs> years ago. On St. Schubert Street in Montreal. So, you see, I miss all those opportunities that I missed. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, meaning that 
creativity becomes part of the whole scheme when you have that. When, you know, so sales was the driver convincing people to adhere to something. And in your life, convincing, we can call it sales, but I don't want it to be preservative, but the ability to synthesize something properly, explain it in a way where people relate to it and want to work with you into something, it's a very important part, I think, of somebody that wants to build something in the future. Yeah, so Claude, you know, with with the understanding of where you are today, um, and, you know, the little you told us about sort of getting your first job, you know, on the delivery side, um, I also, you know, had a similar job. My first job in university was delivering pizza for delivery uh, for pizza delight i ended up having to make the pizzas and deliver them after a while uh but uh that's probably why i didn't have many customers <laughs> but you know when you think back to those days though um did you even though you were being an opportunistic person doing a job to move yourself further in life it was there an underlying drive and and uh, and I would say plan somewhere that you knew you were going on to bigger and better things, and this was just a part of it. It would be silly to think that you draw your life in that fashion, you know. And now we do we were doing reverse engineering. We look at the result and we think we trend to think that there was a mean and a structure around it, which is absolutely not the case. Right, you know. You evolve in time. Your minds evolve. Your structure, your thinking structure evolves over time. That's normal. When you're referring to delivery, the only difference I can tell you is, uh, you know, example, my delivery life, I invented it because, you know what, I knew, the, I knew the stores on the street. I knew the restaurant guy. So I built my own little delivery scheme, you know, between the time I was going to high school and everything. So this is the point I'm saying is, I mind you that franchise models are can be very, very interesting for people, and I do think that they offer a great deal of opportunity. We also, we also have one in GDI, but my point is at this time it was not part of the environment franchise. So I built my own little delivery scheme, always in the thing that I would not think to go to somewhere to a restaurant and say, can you hire me to do delivery? So this has been always part of my life. I've been in business most of my life, but it goes along with opportunity. It goes along with, uh, you know, when what you fall. I don't want to put that luck is, luck is also a very important part of what's happening. You fall in the right place at the right moment. You have the right idea. You meet the right people. You Probably, you know, uh, there's an old expression that if you want something, you throw it in the air. Maybe there was a will, but it was not a structured and organized will. It just evolved over time. And yes, there's times where you have to make decisions. To be in business involves that you have to be able to make decisions. If you don't make decisions, it can be a complicated life. So this being said, I think the ability to make decisions and choose paths you know, a path, a path. So, you know, choose your path as as things are evolving. I think this is what drove, I'm talking for me, I think this is what I've drawn the future that I'm living today. Okay. So, Fair enough? Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. Um, take me back then. Um, so you go through that first business experience. When did you first get to... Um, your first experience where you had to either put some of your own money up to hire other people or you were managing other people. Well, you want to have fun for three minutes? I can show sure. you my little experience. Yeah. So um, in the 70s, uh, I just finished high school and I'm looking for making money. So I realized that, uh, that there was a bus service company not far and their buses were dirty. So came to the manager and says, let me wash your buses. He says, what do you mean? I'm charging you $20. I will wash your buses inside out. 
Oh, well, that's fair enough. Okay, perfect. So tomorrow, so next day, I get to my two, three friends and says, guys, I have work for you. <laughs> hmm. So I work piecework. I says, I'm giving you $3 per buses, three guys, $9, and uh, we're going to clean buses. So the first day after a whole day, we clean one bus. So I had to deal with my first strike. <laughs> <laughs> so from uh, being in business to being without people to do the job, it took 24 hours. So anyway, so next morning, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, upset. That's how I'm going to do it. And you know what? Again, I see, you know, two skids for they put buses on to change the oil. And I see a pressure washer. And I said, mm, that's interesting. So anyway... Second idea is, can I borrow this? Can I borrow this? Yeah, no problem. I take the buses. You know what? Uh, I says, can you put them on top of those uh, skids? No problem. It took me an hour and a half to wash the thing inside out by myself. So now from a strike to uh, no employee business, and I did. Uh, I was washing buses. So after a week, the manager come me says, came to me and says, we have a problem. I says, what is the problem? He says, well, the mechanics... They look at you and you make more money than them, so it cannot work. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, he hired me on a salary to do the same job for the rest of the summer. Wow. So my big lesson learned is when you have a trick, you go into a garage, you shut the door, and you don't let nobody know what you're doing. <laughs> but that's another, that's another story. So this was my first little experience in business, to be re really honest. I just wanted to, you know, yeah. to share that with you. Uh, no, that that just shows uh, it, it, very uh, early training to how you progressed in life, and it and it becomes quite clear to me now as I as I start to think over your entire lifetime. So, when did do so? You know, you showed the entrepreneurial your, your entrepreneurial, I guess you would say, skill set from very early on you know, and, uh, and very creative and, uh, and not willing to work hard or sorry, very willing to work hard. So, you know, when did you then take the leap to running a business where you felt like this is something I can really grow for a period of time. And if I stick to this, this could be a really something special. Well, um, so if we go on a little bit, if I'm doing a little bit more thinking about the past and the timelines is, uh, you know, a couple of years later, I wanted to start a home service company. So I start calling some possible potential subcontractors. And now I'm probably 19 years old or 18 years old or something like this. And I meet this gentleman and finally he convinced me to hire me to do sales for him instead of uh, putting my business together. It's funny because what I was wanted to do at 18 years old, it's exactly what I'm doing today, but it was not, it was not think of, you know, it's just a, a reality. So anyway, so I started to work with this person and now we're talking probably in 1980 where it's very, very, you know, economical climate is bad and everything. Company did not survive. And I went to work for... And now, you know what, now you're 19, you have a girlfriend, you have the means, and you know. So I went to work for somebody that is still a very good friend today. Uh, and uh, I worked into a more corporate business environment for a couple of years. And, um, you know, and this experience gave me, uh, you know, a basic knowledge of the business and the structure and everything. And um, in 1987, I started my own, I uh, went back again. I started my own business into uh, what we call the uh, fire water restoration. Okay. And yes. what was that? Uh, it was in Montreal. Okay. And again, if you want to uh, share a little bit of humoristic story on it and I'm not even exaggerating, that's mm. the foolish part of it is, <laughs> so I want to start doing because the company i was working for were doing general maintenance and construction so this okay. is where i learned construction uh because i was about about eight years in construction and says you know what insurance companies 
it's interesting, you know what, they have money, you're sure to be paid, it's Easy's job, and and uh, decide that I wanted to start this, and no exaggeration, I took the Yellow Pages insurance, I put my finger, like in a movie, put a finger on a company, and said, okay, no, this is company, called them up, had an appointment, Lucky, the new, it's a new guy that is leading the department, so he doesn't have all his buddies. <laughs> yeah. So new guy started there, and this was my construction company for eight years. Wow. And uh, and uh, unfortunately, in 1993, 90, 1993, economy was bad again, and it was difficult, and um, and I came back to the maintenance sector. Okay. And which was which is GDI today. Yeah, and and you know, I think it is during those tougher times, you know, because that was right before the tech boom uh, in those mid nineties. Um, so you were probably setting yourself up at just the right time, cost wise, to take advantage of the growth. Luck, and the, luck is part of it. Luck is part of it. I started the insurance company in the what, the biggest flood of all time in Montreal. I did not know that four months before. <laughs> right. So it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it would, uh, you know, we talked about that with Young Wu, one of our earlier guests who is servicing the, uh, he had 32 million in revenue. And the day, the day before 9-11, he had acquired 32 million in funding to grow his company, but he also lost every dollar of revenue because the insurance company stopped everything after 9-11. So he had all this company and all this money in the bank, but no business. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's very unfortunate. You know what? I have friends that made a fortune, example, with our recent pandemic. Some people made a lot of money, but a lot of people suffered big time and put a lot of, uh, of their earned money into the business. You know, and this is things that you have more or less no control. Right. Well, you know, and I, you know, I have this argument all the time. When I, everybody I know that is successful says that luck is a big part of it. It is, and, absolutely. Uh, but I also say that, you know, there are always successful people that say that. And well, so but, are they? Are they, are they just the kinds of people... They never stop their feet moving, so they get in the way of opportunity more. I think you said other. it. I think that luck is a part, but it takes that you expose yourself. You have to expose yourself to, you know, to the events. If you don't, it's difficult for opportunities shows up. You have to see them, and if you want to see them, you have to be exposed. You need to be in, you know, in the vortex. Yeah, yeah. When did you meet uh, your wife? At, at what part of your career? My wife, I met, you know what, we're 35 years together, and uh, actually it's our wedding anniversary next month, and uh, oh, terrific. we're going back in Greece where I got married. But we're both French-Canadian, and uh, so it has, it's another story. She wanted to be married in Greece on an island. and the, the, Which the island did you pick? Uh, Santorini. Oh, that's uh, where my wife and I had our honeymoon. Yes, that's it's very nice. a fantastic nice. island. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I'm going to be there in uh, six weeks from now. But uh, I, we we met in a store in Montreal, and uh, I don't want to go through this whole story because we'll need the whole day. But in a <laughs> nutshell, again, you seize the opportunity. Uh, I'm in the I'm in the store, and she's sitting and waiting for her order, and. Uh, you know what? And I came to her and I started engaging conversation and it looks like it was very annoying. So, and, uh, and she asked me why I was, and I gave her the little smear, like if I have to talk to somebody, I want to talk to the nicest girl in the place. And you are this, it did not fly high. <laughs> yeah. But I uh, said, so, you know, I asked her what she was doing and she says, well, I'm a lawyer. I said, oh, lawyers, I'm in business. I need lawyers sometime. Where are you? I says, well, I'm a lawyer in Montreal. Now she's looking. He says, what does he want from me? <laughs> says, in Montreal. I says, we're in Montreal. And she says, well, on that street. I said, oh, that street, but that street corner of this other street. So I said, so your office is at 
this address. Now I got her attention. She says, how do you know that? <laughs> it's simple. You know, the corner street, there's this on one side, this on the other side, and there's two buildings. So you're not in that building because I own that building and the <laughs> other one. So you have to be in the other one. So, and uh, this kicks it off. And uh, three kids later and 35 years, uh, here we are. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Um, then, um, so... Going back then to, you know, starting your business, you've done a lot of M&A um, as part of your growth strategy. As you've grown from, you know, 50 million to 100 million to what were sort of the, the big events during that history? When were the, when you really gambled a lot of what you already had on the table in order to grow the business more. And, and then I know you went public at one point, which might've changed your world a, a bunch too. So. Well, um, let me pause here to put things in two, three buckets. Risk, M&A and big moments. So on the risk side, for sure, I think my biggest risk decision is when I decide to take control of the company I was a minority shareholder in, you know, the predecessor of GDI. So it was a big decision because it was implying that I'm not alone in this decision. When you mortgage the kids and the seven next generations, you know what, you need to have some little talks at home. So this was a big risk moment. Um, after that, you you know... Again, where you can make a connection between youth and growing, I am not the I am not a totally risk averse, but I am risk prudent because I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose what I didn't want to lose the past. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to put myself in a situation where it's live or die, and I don't think I will ever do it. So that's on the risk side. On the great moment, uh, not on the great, but on the m and activity, m and as far as I'm concerned, it's an action plan. It's to put resources into it. It's very important. A lot of people want to grow through acquisitions, but it stay only at the state of a dream in their head. Mm -hmm. They don't put together the structure, the plan, the resources, the people to support that. It's a big mistake. And thirdly, again, uh, like I was uh, sharing with you is, it's a very, very important moment in the life of a seller. They need to see the value. Not only most of the seller that I met in life, they're not selling strictly for price. They're looking for a home for the business they built. So, you know, and it's very important. So I think that we could we could relate together into the past of what happened and how we built. And again, the capacity to sit down with some people and clearly state what you want to do and how you will do it, I think it helps a lot. So I think I was not bad at that. So you combine that with very efficient resources that are working. I have great people working uh, in many aspects in the company, but... Uh, my lead of the M&A activity is almost a son to me. So it's very, very important. And thirdly, the big moment in life, for sure there is transformational, uh, you know, what acquisition. Don't forget uh, when I came public is, you know, what we were, uh, a Montreal company. Mm -hmm. the, I had the opportunity to acquire a company based out of Toronto that had a Canadian platform, except Quebec. Right. Because, you know, the French call it exception or something. Hopefully this barrier is, you know, is fuzzier and fuzzier over time because I do believe we have a great country and uh, which there should not be anything else than us all together working and developing that country. Anyway, to make a long story short, it was a great moment. It gave me the opportunity to become a Canadian platform from coast to coast. Uh, another great moment is to be able to jump into the U.S. market in 2012, where 
I was able to uh, make an acquisition of an American company. And funny, it was the another sub of the company I bought in Toronto. It was another related company. So, you know, it was easy. So it was another great moment. Another great moment, I would say, is we became very significant player in North America in what we call the business services that includes cleaning services, warehousing, you know, everything we do. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to acquire uh, at a reasonable price uh, a company that was, that was evolving in the technical service industry. Yeah, and that really it was a sub of the of one of your guests that was with you uh, before me. It was a sub the a sub company that they had, so I had the opportunity to acquire it. Mm -hmm. So this gave us the platform to build our technical service group, which is which has gone extremely well. Actually, yes. Uh, again, great talent, great people. Yeah. So today. The business from Montreal, you know, the fifty million dollar business from Montreal now is a is a billion dollar business service company, a billion dollar technical service company operating fifty percent in the state, fifty percent in Canada. So mm -hmm. I think now we are pretty diversified in in our two segments. We cover a lot of market uh, uh, geography. So again, but. It's all about people, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not making a false. Uh, you know, it's all about people. You have to live it. You have to live. When you say it's about people, you have to live it. You were saying something about most of the people that we uh, transact with are still there, because there is a will to this happen. There yeah. is a way that we do things that people that you know the teams is engaged because there is other reward than money. Yes. You know, the sense of building something, the sense of of realization, the sense of achievement, the way that we all interact together. I think it has something to do in the whole thing. Yeah. And that's um, uh, you you gave me one of my first big lessons around, um, you know, different strategies to go after some of the best people in the market. And and I remember that one of the CEOs you had uh, asked me to find one time. Uh, we ended up buying his business and keeping him to run it. And and boy, did that turn out well. You know, he became a totally rejuvenated person with the same business, but with bigger resources to use in a in a business that believed in what he did before his business was really part of another business that didn't really value him the same way that your business does and uh and had put him in as part of a real strategic piece of the business so so that was great learning for me as well um so now you've you've acquired Ainsworth um you know you've made some other acquisitions um you're a public vehicle your stock I think has has appreciated somewhere in the 60 percent range plus um over the last while so it's the you've been able to swallow up your prey and and make them an efficient part of your organization for the most part a lot you know you mentioned that you have somebody that you've trusted in your m a for a long time um, many organizations your size will have firms that go out there and do that um I think it, uh, and you've had a very, very high rate of success and, and the uh, deals that you've gone after, you haven't missed as many. And uh, you mentioned that the seller is looking for more than just price. And I absolutely think that's a hundred percent true. Um, I think private equity firms are learning that more every year as they make acquisitions themselves and and realize that you know money is money um what comes with the money is going to impact their their lives as much as anything so take us back to um you know maybe some uh, tell me a little bit about three or four of the uh roles that you've 
kept people in that have really helped sustain you through, you know, a hundred million to 2 billion in growth, which is a great Canadian story. Um, and one we need to learn a little bit more about today. Yeah. Well, uh, David, first, uh, I think there's two sorts of, uh, I don't want to oversimplify things, but, you know, there are people that are, are in it for the money. And there are some people that are in it for the game or for the business. I try to work with the people that are in it for the business. So when you talk about success stories, about m and &E and people staying is, I think that the latter are the one that, yes, they make a little bit of money, they secure their financial end, you know, they're happy, they can live the, you know, they can drink the Kool-Aid, but they still have the opportunity to continue on the dream of their life or their, uh, the achievement of what they started. Right. Because I think they genuinely are in for the game. I'm not saying that people are, are only in for the money is one thing, but it's another set of skill. It's another approach. It's more systematic. It's not so much about people. You talk about private equities. You know, uh, I don't want to say that private equities, they're all bad guys, but... I'm saying there's a lot of value-driven private equity firms that I'm not sure they value the, the right business model, at least going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that, like anything else, I think we're, we're pushing the envelope to an extreme where I don't, I'm not sure of the global societal value creation because the, you know, it becomes fee structures, and, uh, you know, it's loan and money flow. It's not about building real value that's sustained over time, people, talent, contribution. So I'm not saying it's a bad, bad model, but I think this model will evaluate into times. But again, on my mm -hmm. part, my little, my little world is I tend to work with people that are in for the game, that wants to still contribute, that have a sense of achievement and and we are and this makes us a very sticky team because mm -hmm. we are aligned well and, and, and they've there's made a lot a, of respect in between yeah go ahead well sorry but some of your you know the executives that you've brought into the organization have done well on their stock so i'm not uh, saying uh, that uh, we should be monks uh, i'm just yeah. saying that <laughs> it's uh, the driver you know what yeah. i make sure my job is to make sure that they have the right environment to evolve the right comp systems that yes they like money they like wealth and they make money and i tell you that uh Probably all my guys are all millionaires. Well, you know, if you take the top 15 guys in the organization, they're all millionaires. Talking about that, uh, you know, I always remember uh, Barbara Walters. She was not as good as you in interviewing, but she was not bad. And uh, she was asking Bill Gates, she was saying, Mr. Gates, you know what? You have it easy at the end of the day if you look at it. You know what? You have all this stuff working for you and you have your head of divisions and everything. So... What is your what do you what do you do in the business? He says, Well, let me tell you something. My top 20 executives, they're all billionaires. My job is to want making them want it to go to work in the morning. So it is exactly what it is because they're not in for the money. Mm -hmm. They could stop a gazillion time. This is not the driver. So for me, I try to, I don't want to emulate the Bill Gates model. Uh, especially on the family side. Mm -hmm. But uh, this being said, I think that my job is to provide the best possible environment for them to evolve, to make sure that financially they're satisfied mm -hmm. and that they have something to attain and we have goals and objectives. And so far, I think that uh, people respond very well to that. And how important... Uh do you think it is, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember back, I know you've been involved with uh, some overseas trips with other entrepreneurs or business owners from Quebec or Canada. And uh, I seem to remember somebody telling me a story about that years ago. 
what how do you feel about the giving back side and uh, uh, do you take time out of your life to do that or do you do it through your organization uh, giving back I think it's important I think that uh, again I don't want to overcomplicate things but uh, let's let's start with the bigger bucket we are in a very very uh, very nice country we have probably one of the highest tax level uh, but I think that our level of global wealth is better than many other countries. So giving back also accepts that when you are in business, you contribute if you are a good tax-paying citizen, to start with. Right. Let's start at the first level, you know, tax evasions and putting money everywhere you can hide it and everything. By, pro by providing sustainable salaries to people, by paying your taxes and be a contributor to that, it's already a first step. So that's right. one bucket. I agree with that. Though. And I think in Canada, we have this environment. You know what? Some people think that they can go to U.S. or to go some places where taxes are contributing to your homeland. I think it's important. First bucket. Second bucket is for sure... Uh, Myself, my wife, we would not be comfortable to, you know, not divert, uh, divert wealth to causes that are dear to us. You know, so Andre and I, what we are focusing on is uh, it's health, education and art. Uh, for sure, it's always uh, nice and sentimental to give money for, you know, little kids, sick kids and everything. It's always, and they exploit it very well, right? They're good at that, and that's their job. But us, we wanted to separate that because art, I think, is very important also for the development of the society and everything. If you came to my offices, you know that we have a little bit of engagement there. So, yes, we, uh, we put substantial amount of financial support to those three causes that are dear to us. Yep. Now I try are... to do it without uh, being known because although we like it, we don't want to be called 50 times a day. So we try to do it with the least exposure possible. Right. And I, and I think, um, uh, and I think that's the way many people go about doing it. And, uh, um, I have a very good friend who's a successful tech op entrepreneur who's chair of the opera company. Um, and I think that's candidly where a lot of the areas where private wealth can come in and sustain and support the things that government needs to support. 80% of donations in Canada comes from, and that's normal, you know, your means as you need to survive, you need to provide for your family, you need to provide for your safety, you need to provide for education for your own. You know, giving back it comes at one point. It's after you have achieved the, you know, at least the three, the three steps of the the stair of Maslow. So right. my point, you know what I'm saying. So, this being said, French Canadians, and now I'm making a big statement without any substance, probably, but uh, I'll say it anyway. I think the Anglo-Saxon world has has been having a better education into, you know, donation and sharing wealth. You know, it, you know the, I would say older nations, older ties, and, you know, probably better wealth also in Canada because mm -hmm. I think French Quebec has been evolving only for the last 50, 60 years into becoming kind of an economical, uh, you know, uh, trained or an economical uh, instrument in Canada. But I think French French Canadians are getting there, and I think that you know I think it will evolve more positively over the next years. Yeah, and and we were talking. Uh, you were ta we were talking also earlier about private equity and and the impact they're having. Um, you know, I was talking um, with another group of CEOs the other day. Um, on the compelling topic about the influence of 
of money on things like AI and in other big societal um, uh, problems that, that we may have to deal with moving forward. And there are organizations like BlackRock and others that control trillions and trillions in, in wealth now. Um, you know, how... Uh, I think it's more important than ever, in my view, that that CEOs that have had uh, some success and that have shown their people that care, um, you know, step forward and, because people have lost faith in the media, many of them, and many young people. Many people have lost faith in the politicians. And so it's they're waiting for someone else to come to step up and and there have been some big U.S. In, you know, in technology leaders and that that have jumped in to give their opinions on things of late. But I think we're going to need more of our leaders to take a step forward and and uh, and give um, an honest feedback to our young people on on how they might make the world a better place. If I had the if I had the response to that, it would be I would be a, I would be in a different place. Um, again, you know, politics. As a nation, we don't recognize sometimes the the abnegation it takes to be in politics, for example, and I think that people expect our politicians to be perfect people. You know, like we all humans, we all have a past life. We all did mistake. We all, but over that, they want people to be monks. They, we want our politician to be poor. We want our politicians to don't do anything. We want them to have no friends. We want them, <laughs> and you know what? They should not be paid. And but that's this that's society. That's the normality. What can I tell you? And I don't think we're going to change anytime soon. But. What I think it's creating, it's a creating a climate where it becomes a professional job. It's no more, politics doesn't seem to be no more fueled by ideas, by wanting to do something better, something compelling. It becomes almost a professional job because nobody, or I don't see much people that, wants to expose themselves because as soon as you step into this arena, you expose yourself to the worst of what you can live. Yeah. So this being said, you know, again, I cannot, I cannot, uh, I cannot tell you the future, but I think we should be a little bit more cautious about the way we work with our public people. Media has a job to do there. Mm -hmm. And I think media, as far as I'm concerned, there are too much rooms in influencing society, but we don't get there today. And I'm not saying that every successful entrepreneur should be a good politician and good governments. Absolutely not. It takes different set of skills. It takes a different sense of, of um, perception on people. You don't manage a business like you manage a population. Mm -hmm. And how you work with the population, it's two different senses. It's not a mathematical, it's not a budget. It takes a different things. It takes an idea, it takes a will to do something. And you need to have a strong social sensibility. This yeah. is what I expect from my politician. I don't want them to be moneymaker. I want to make sure that everybody has what they need. I want to make sure that the money is well spent. I want to make sure that they take care of things that we have no time to take care. You were talking about donation. Some people involve themselves, they put their time, their energy into giving. And it has a great, great value. Is it always recognized? Sometimes not. You have the front page of the guy that gives 10, to 10 million to the university. But the people that gives a lot of time to help, they are the stars. Yeah. But you know what, example like me, you know what, time is, uh, is a bit constrained. So we do a check. Actually, we have the easy part. Yeah. If you allow me to say that. Yeah, no, and we have to keep all, we always have to look after our health more and more these days too. So uh, we've that, that cross to bear. Um, you know, I think that um, 
as I think young people who are listening to this show, younger executives that are listening to this show, I think they're they're going to come away feeling um, that there's lots of opportunity, and uh, and that's really what the show is about: trying to allow uh, others, peers of yours, even to hear that you know opportunity presents itself in a lot of different ways, but week after week after week, we hear from. Um, fantastic CEOs and leaders like yourself um, uh, about the hardships they've gone through and the consistency in certain words that we hear, you know, toughness, resiliency, opportunism, uh, stick-to-itiveness, you know, work ethic, uh, you know, these are things that I think are ingrained into long-term, what a long-term great leader is. And that doesn't mean whether you came up the corporate route or you started your own business. We've had people that have come from both and absolutely, and, and both have done well. Um, you it's know, a state of mind. It's not a role. It's a state of mind. It really is. And if, and if that's what we can, uh, uh, leave people with is is that belief um you know it isn't it takes courage for ceos even to do these kinds of formatted shows where you're opening yourself up to some personal uh history and uh in order to allow others to uh understand that there are roads to a good end that that goes through tough and bumpy times, and uh, if you just keep the car on the highway and uh, absorb enough of the bumps, that you'll you'll sort of end up where you want to be. Um, what do you what do you do for fun these days? The next best thing after you know work, family, it's is actually enjoying travel. Okay, and uh, because there's a world to discover, I think it's very educative. Uh, for sure, you know, I come a time now where, you know, the org, well, two, three things is the resources that the organization has, the technology that is a big enabler today, and the means for sure at the same times uh, enables uh, me and my wife and the kids to travel yeah. and explore the world. And it's a great learning experience. And uh, this would be probably my most my best next thing is to enjoy traveling, and I don't have to hide it. I, I like food and wine. Food and wine. Uh-huh. So well, that's another thing. So, and uh, it gives me this uh, this opportunity to discover the world around food and wine. And uh, you know, uh, I don't want to sound bad, but uh, we visit a gazillion cathedrals and all this. So. So I don't do that uh, much anymore, but discovering and going back to the places we love and I can permit myself to do that. That's, yeah. that, that's very, very interesting for me. No, that's great. I, I, I also think it, it grows you as an individual too when you keep doing that and keep... It makes reading. you realize how good we are here. I can tell you <laughs> this. So yeah. I think we should all have uh, two tickets for around the world in 80 days. Uh, it will put perspective in the people's life. Yeah, yeah. No, we. Uh, uh, I. Uh, I always think of you with a good sense of humor, and sometimes it's a bit dry, so I miss it goes over my right shoulder. Uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the show, we always kind of like uh, to ask uh, uh, for you a funny story or embarrassing story about yourself that. Uh, happened over the years that uh, um, that makes you laugh today, but maybe wasn't so funny when it happened, or uh, or perhaps you you even uh, if you understand golf a little bit, you you can tell us about a mulligan, you know something maybe you would do over again if you could do it again. Well, listen, uh, embarrassing stories. Uh, you have another two, three hours? Yeah, no, sure. Okay, we have five minutes. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, no, I'm not into golf yet. I was not able to learn golf yet. Uh, that's one thing that probably one day I'll get around it. 
But my son is a very good dog golfer. He has a life in. Oh, great. <laughs> it's a fun thing to do with your family, and it allows you to travel still, too. Uh, yeah, you know what? There's no big and embarrassing uh, story that comes into my mind. Uh, I have the uh, ability to put myself in trouble often. <laughs> uh, so, but you know what? With with age, I would say that I learned that I'm a lot less in trouble by asking questions than making statements. So it's uh, you know that's a, I think it's a better place. But I can tell you many stories around. Uh, you know, I'm French. Sometimes uh, do expressions in English that can be a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. So in front of audiences, I put myself in trouble a couple of times. But uh, you know, I don't nothing that comes to mind right now. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, anything else that you'd like to leave us with before we end our discussion today? And uh, and I and on behalf of all the listeners today, I'd like to thank you for all of your candid and, and honest honesty in your responses. And I, I think it bodes well for the future of our country that we keep creating great leaders like yourself. And, um, uh, is well, there, yeah, well, listen, uh, David, again, I just said that asking questions is better than making statement. And here I am, uh, I'm going the other way. That's not good. But this being said, I think that we need to be sensible to our youth. You know, uh, there's a lot of changes. I think that my big lessons I'm learning lately is, you know, I'm, I have a say, it says, when you ask a youth to do something, don't expect that he'll do it as good as you would do it. He'll probably do it better. <laughs> and that's not even a joke, that's a reality. They have different means, they have a different mind, they're very creative. It's surprising what you can get. I think we have to give it a chance. It has changed. World is changing. And the only last thing again that I would say is, for 150 years, we live a totally different life than everybody before us have lived. Because we have created machines. Machine multiplied our strength or our energy by a gazillion. If we did not have if we didn't have motor and machines slash energy, we'd be planting carrots this morning. So the idea is that we have changed our world dramatically. It comes with a price. This price is our climate issues. We're getting into a challenge. Us, you know, you and I, we won't see the terminal effects of it. But there are some people in this room that might see it, and our kids and our grandkids. So I'm saying that we need to really, really reflect deeply on that. What we have to do today, it's not, it won't be easy. The world is a small place, but it's also a big place. Everybody have different... We have problems to get a law passed here. Imagine now we're talking countries and everything. But we need to we need to really put energy and times into working around that because it will make a big big change. World will prevail. They will find ways. People will finally find ways. But I'm concerned at a price that will be extremely high. I'm not talking economically. I'm talking in life and lifestyles and everything. So the biggest 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 thing that our next big challenge is this how the humanity has to behave today into the next century and above so if i had to say something this is i think a big 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 issue to work on yeah agreed i think and thank you very much for having me uh, with you it was a very nice hour and hopefully we'll uh, hear you when you do your own podcast <laughs> thank you i think people would be more interested in the people i'm talking to but uh, thank you very much for for everyone joining us today on another edition of The Riddick Show. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been The RDK Show. Stay resilient. Find us at RDK Show on social media.